We're in Daniel chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me, beginning at verse 1. If you've got a Bible from church, it's page 875. Daniel 3, beginning at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, la, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 in the uh, Church Bibles it's on page 1203. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, it'd be good for you to have uh, Daniel 3 open in front of you. That's what we're going to be working our way through tonight. And uh, there's a couple of times when I'll go with some cross-references. They'll come up on the screen so you can follow those up there. Let's pray as we begin together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity we have now to hear your word. Father, you know our needs, you know our lives, you know where we stand before you, you know what it's like for us to go about making disciples in our community. Father, we pray now that you'd speak to us through your word, uh, help us to hear what we need to hear and, and Father, we pray for your spirit to enable us to respond in the way you want us to so that we might continue to bring glory and honour to Jesus and we ask in his name. Amen. Well, around the world, uh, there are some remarkable buildings and statues that you can go and visit and look at. Uh, Just by way of example, you might think of the Statue of Liberty or the Eiffel Tower or perhaps the Pyramids uh, or the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, Big Ben. Uh, You've seen that hotel in Dubai? That's a quality building, isn't it? Uh, The Golden Gate Bridge, the Colosseum, the Kremlin, and of course iconic to Sydney is the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. Well done, Alastair. Now, uh, why do we build such things? Why do we do that? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, Because in their own right, they are useful buildings. If you want to get from one side to the other, it's a good idea to have a bridge, isn't it? Uh, they have useful purposes. They, they also serve as excellent tourist attractions. People go to see them. They, they go to admire them, to marvel at them, to, to ponder what they're trying to communicate. And, and they also bring in a whole heap of tourist dollars, of course, when that happens. They provide an opportunity for creative architecture. For those people that are that way inclined, that, that like to design things and build things, it's a great opportunity for them to, to express their creativity and to express... Uh, how they want to uh, build things for the world. And it also allows a nation or a government to communicate to the world how great they are or how powerful they are or perhaps even just how well they use technology. Now, in Babylon, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did as he attempted to show off his greatness. He built a tower 90 feet high, made of gold, That's sort of reminiscent of the gold head in his dream back in chapter 2. The gold head that represented how powerful his kingdom was. And then he invited all the A-list celebrities to come to the opening celebration. You see there, he invited the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates and all the other provincial officials. They gathered together to celebrate the king and his power. And then, just in case someone didn't quite catch the vision of how great he was, a new decree was given. 
For whenever one heard the sound of the horn, or the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, they had to bow down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Or else they would be thrown into a blazing furnace. It all sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Well, first of all, you might remember at the end of last week's chapter, Nebuchadnezzar announced that Daniel's God was the God of gods, he was the Lord of kings. Why then would he set up an image like this to be worshipped? It's a good question, we're not told in the text, are we? It's probably because Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist, he believed in many gods. In fact, at the time, it was only the Jews who believed in monotheism, one God. And so it's quite likely that that Nebuchadnezzar did believe that that Daniel worshipped a very powerful God, yet he was still keen for people to bow down to his own greatness. And so he just didn't see a problem with that, as strange as it might seem to us. Now, inasmuch as his behaviour seems strange, it's also deranged, isn't it? He set up a rule whereby anybody who didn't bow down and worship the image would be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, is it just me or is that the behaviour of a control freak or of a tyrant? A tyrant punishes anyone who opposes their regime. To force someone to convert to a religion or to punish anyone who conscientiously objects is tyrannical. That's what's going on here. So on one level it's strange, another level it's deranged, at another level it's also quite pathetic. Nebuchadnezzar has made this attempt at greatness. You can see it in how the chapter is written, the fact that the author continually draws our attention to Nebuchadnezzar having to set up everything, shows us how hard he's working to impress others and celebrate himself. But also, this story is best read out loud. Do you enjoy the way Anna read it? Uh, Where you can hear the repetitiveness of the list of people present. You can hear the repetitiveness of the musicians. It's meant to sound silly and foolish. And if you read it out loud from start to finish, it does sound silly and foolish. It's written in a way which by itself mocks Nebuchadnezzar's attempt at greatness. Despite that though, the command to worship the image created a huge challenge for those who wanted to live faithfully to God, which is what our friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego want to do. And before long they're dobbed in for not obeying the decree. Now we have to pause there and think, sadly we ought not be surprised at that, should we? The idea of of people dobbing in God's people. For for Christians, you see, enjoying enjoying favour from this world is short term. Okay? It's a bit like the fame and glory the gold medalist will receive for a while before until about Tuesday or Wednesday we all move on with our lives. And when you have a society that punishes people who don't worship their idols, it doesn't take long for accusations to come. And and you see it, as as free speech is eroded in our nation. 
It will be increasingly difficult for us to to speak out without being labelled as bigoted or hate-filled or discriminatory. And just like the Catholic Archbishop of Tasmania, who recently was dragged through the courts for publishing a pamphlet where he said, I believe marriage should continue to be between a man and a woman, well, we ourselves may find ourselves forced to defend our actions in living faithfully to God. Now, the accusation that's here against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is actually presented in quite a personal way. Have a look at verse 12. The accusers say to Nebuchadnezzar, there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. You see how it's framed in a personal way that they're rejecting Nebuchadnezzar and not just reacting to a tyrannical law or or exercising their, their conscience to respectfully worship their God. The accusers make it personal. You see, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had been promoted to positions of public prominence and that made them more visible At the same time, it made them more vulnerable. It also gave them the opportunity to set an example to God's people as they wrestled with life in exile. No doubt they were mindful of why they were in exile in the first place. Do you remember that from a couple of weeks ago? God had handed Israel over to Babylon as punishment for generations of rebellion against him. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would also have known the first two commandments in the Jewish law. Do you remember? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, upon hearing this accusation against these three men, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He hauled them in to interrogate them. He repeated the command. He threatened them again with the consequence for disobedience. And then he framed the battleground with his question in verse 15. Did you notice it there? He says, Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm powerful. Who do you think could possibly overpower me or usurp my authority? And on the surface, Nebuchadnezzar was powerful. He was probably the most powerful man on earth at the time. But it doesn't dent the trust that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have in God. Have a look at verse 16. They respond to him, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. That almost sounds demeaning in itself, doesn't it? We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Is what we're seeing there bravery or stupidity? Nebuchadnezzar, you asked us, what God can save us from your hand? Well, here's the answer. The God we serve can do that. And to be honest, we don't actually know if he will, but either way, he's still more powerful than you, so we will serve him and him only. Which means that, no, we won't bow down to you or worship the image of God you have set up. Bravery or stupidity? To frame it like that is to actually ask the wrong question. The right question to ask is, do they trust God no matter what the circumstances? Because it's easy to trust God when things go our way, isn't it? Or when things go according to how we'd like them to go. But do we trust God when circumstances vary from what we'd like? Do we trust God for who he is and what he is able to do or do we only trust him when he gives us what we want or acts in the way we expect he will? Our God is able to save us although we do acknowledge that in this particular instance he might choose not to for a bigger purpose. You see, when we, when we pray for people who are sick and we ask for healing, we do so knowing that God may not choose to do that. Or just more broadly, whenever we ask God for things, we do so knowing that he may say yes, but he may say no or not yet. Or what about when someone threatens our security or someone threatens our comfort or someone threatens our well-being because we're trying to serve God? Will we back down? Or will we trust him because we know who he is and what he's able to do? The response of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego points us forward to the day that Jesus was in the desert facing temptations from the devil. Here's a little section from Matthew 4 which which talks about the third temptation that Jesus experienced. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus, here's your opportunity. One day you're going to be installed as king over everything anyway. Why not take it now? And you know what? Then you won't have to die in order to gain everything. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus could have avoided death by bowing down to worship Satan. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could have avoided the blazing furnace by bowing down to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, on this occasion, they exemplified faithfulness to God, yet yet overall in their life, they still deserve to die because of other sin in their life. But in contrast, Jesus was obedient all the time. He was obedient to the point of death. He ended up getting killed for his obedience. A death he died to take the punishment we deserve for our sin. 
And it's through his death that God rescues us from sin and death. So if Jesus had taken the easy road, then the punishment for our sin would still be outstanding. And we'd be left to face the full wrath of God on our own. And so that brings us to our next point. God rescues his people. Have a look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Now that's a hot fire. While we were on holidays recently, uh, we were staying at a, a, a holiday place up near, up near Foster. The manager of the property there decided to make a bonfire one day because his grandkids were visiting for a couple of days. And, and the day he did that, he invited our kids to go and be part of it, which was a lot of fun. And they had a great time collecting sticks and, and putting them on the fire, you know, cooking their marshmallows and eating them off the sticks and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, the fire was hot, but you could get pretty much within an arm's reach and you'd be okay. The hottest fire I've seen, I think, is in one of the steel mills at the steelworks at Port Kembla. I used to work down there. And uh, occasionally I went on tours through the steelmaking areas. Do you know steel melts at about 1,300 degrees? You can feel the heat from a long way away. You don't get too close. Now sadly, uh, history tells us that there have been a couple of accidents there where people have come into contact with molten steel. It's 1,300 degrees, they died on the spot. And I remember asking one day, I remember saying to someone, what, what would happen to the steel if, if someone did fall in? Well, that's a lot of money for a company like that. <laughs> oh, well, they'd just melt into it and they'd sell it as impure, was the response I got. <laughs> this fire was as hot as could be. But God rescued Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Have a look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. That's amazing. 
don't you think? They were safe, effectively untouched by the flames. They didn't even smell. How long does it take to get the smell of smoke out of your clothes if you've been near a bonfire? I accidentally set my daughter's hair on fire once. Stank. You want to know how now, don't you? I was holding her in my arms. It was birthday time for her and me, so there was a big cake there with lots of candles on it. And, uh, and she was trying to blow the candles out, but because she was blowing down, it wasn't working. So I tried to lower her so she could blow it across. And next thing I know, my auntie's slapping her in the forehead going, she's on fire! Because <laughs> her fringe had dropped into the candle. She's just sitting there going... Anyway, she's forgiven me for that, I think. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had accepted the wrath of the king in order to remain steadfast in loyalty to God. And now they experience the wonderful favour of God. And when it says that Nebuchadnezzar saw one like a son of God's, we can't be sure what he actually saw, but what we do know is that God was somehow present with them. God sent help and God rescued his people. You notice then the focus shifts to the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisors. They're all crowding around because they're looking at it going, this is nuts. How is this possible? I think it's also because they saw the real God in action. They spend their time worshipping a gold tower which does nothing and now they've seen the real God in action and they're blown away. And then finally, attention returns to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Don't you wonder about Nebuchadnezzar? What he's thinking? Is that not the most bizarre sort of ending to that story? You know, although he had met the God who is able to save in this way, he had seen his power at work, he's still keen, isn't he, to to assert his own rule, to assert his own sovereignty, to control the religious attitudes of the people in his nation, of all languages and nations. And I don't think he quite realised what he was doing because by making this decree, anyone who was still worshipping the gold tower was breaking the decree he just made and so now would be liable to be cut into pieces and have their houses turned into a pile of rubble. I don't think he got that, do you? So as we sort of summarise what what Daniel 3, the, the flow of the story in Daniel 3, we see three things. Firstly, we see Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to show off his greatness. Secondly, we see the challenge for God's people to live faithfully. 
And thirdly, we see how God rescues his people. That's sort of the flow of the story through Daniel 3. Now we're just going to reflect on that for a couple of minutes. And as we reflect on this chapter, what can we learn then about making disciples by responding to the changing face of our society? How does it help us make disciples? How does it help us grow as disciples? Three quick things to finish up. The first one is this. Notice that God rescues his people. But we do need to understand that in a fuller sense than Nebuchadnezzar who exclaimed, no other God can save, you see there, in this way. So if you happen to disobey a king's command and get thrown into a blazing fire, that God can help you. We understand God to be much bigger and powerful than that, don't we? What Nebuchadnezzar has done is had a limiting effect on God and what he's able to do. And that puts a, 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 a limiting effect on the imperative to trust him. When it comes to, to bigger issues like dealing with sin in our lives and, and dealing with death itself, well, we know that only God is able to save. And he's not limited to only do it he can do it fully and comprehensively sin and death are done with and he saves us through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as we read in uh, uh, 1 Timothy for there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus who gave up himself as a ransom for all people and what's that got to do with making disciples? Well, as we make disciples, we want to call people into a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's only through people coming into a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ that they can be saved from the biggest issues of all, sin and death. God rescues people. Now, secondly, as we think about making disciples, we see too... That, that we want people to turn away from idols. Now, there are any number of idols that we see in our society that people are chasing after. Uh, money, sex, pleasure, good marks, technology, possessions, to name but a few. You can probably name heaps of other idols that you see in our society. And, and God gives us wisdom to see the, the foolishness of chasing after those things. The foolishness of turning away from God. And so as we make disciples, we need to be calling on people to turn away from idols and to put their trust in the true living God for he is the one who is able to save. He is the one powerful to do it. So as we make disciples... We want people to come into a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus and we want people to turn away from the idols they're chasing after because they won't deliver anything. They're as useful as a gold tower standing there. We want them to trust the true living God. But of course, as, you, as we think about that, you, you can understand as well as I can, they're big calls to make, aren't they? And so making disciples will come at a cost. 
For the more we call on people to relinquish their pursuit of idols, the more they're going to push back at us. The more visibly we live differently to others, the more vulnerable we're going to be to scrutiny and accusation. But Daniel 3 teaches us that whatever our circumstances, God is with us. Now, in some cases, he may not come to the rescue of his saints for that particular thing because he's got a greater purpose in mind. Nor does he promise that we will never suffer in this life. That's not what he does. What he does do is give us a guarantee that he will be with us when we suffer. That's the point of the fourth person in the fire. And so if we're Christians... We stand in line with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We stand in line with Daniel. doesn't even get a mention in this chapter, does he? We stand in line with Jesus and the Apostle Paul and, and countless others throughout the generations who have chosen to follow God. And as we stand in line, there will come a time that our stand must be their stand. There will come a time when their words must be our words. And God helps us here. He doesn't, he doesn't muck around. He says very clearly, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a bit scary, but he also gives us a wonderful assurance and a wonderful promise because he know, we know that he is with us. If we stand with God, he will stand with us. If we disown him, he will disown us, Paul says to Timothy. Now, just to finish off, in the Bible, fire usually represents one of two things. It usually represents either judgment or refinement. We saw judgment in the story. Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers experienced God's judgment and were consumed by the fire. But sometimes God uses tests and trials to refine our faith. And sometimes we have to go through those and experience the cost of discipleship. And that's what Peter speaks about in his letter. You can read some stuff about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, but tonight we're looking at some verses from 1 Peter chapter 4. And let's finish with these words. And Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name as he refines our faith and makes us more like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are powerful and trustworthy, that you're able to save. And Father, you are far more valuable than any idol in the whole world. Father, we pray that as we think about making disciples, you would give us courage and boldness to call people to come to relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death and resurrection, that he took the punishment we deserve. Father, we pray that you would help us to persuade people that the only way to find salvation for their sin 
It's through faith in Jesus. And Father, we live in a world that is besotted with idols of one form and another, and in many ways our hearts are too. And so we pray that you give us clear, godly wisdom to see those idols for what they are, that we ourselves would be keen to pursue and trust only in the true and living God, and that you help us to call on people to turn away from their idols and put their trust in you as well. But Father, we know that it's going to come at great cost. So we pray that you'd strengthen us, give us courage and boldness to keep standing up for Jesus and living for his glory and honour, even when it means being different to other people, even when we know it might bring persecution upon us. Father, we pray that we would treasure Jesus and life in him more than anything else. And so that would direct everything we do and say that we might bring him glory and honour such as he deserves. We ask in his name. Amen.